Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we are in the midst of a series that we've called True Grace, Grit to Stand in Hostile Territory. And in this series, we are walking through the book of First Peter, a book that I believe God gave us through the Apostle Peter, penned to believers scattered about modern-day Turkey, encouraging them and encouraging us that even though our world is difficult, even though there is opposition, even though there is persecution and struggle and strife, that we can stand in this world and not just be blown away. And that the strength to stand, the grit to stand, does not come from our own strength. It comes from something that God graciously gives us. And we've been walking through that uh, this summer from the book of 1 Peter. As a matter of fact, Peter, when he writes this letter in chapter 5 and verse 12, summarizes his message by saying, you know, uh, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so we are, are here today um, looking at God's true grace so that we might stand in this world. And we've done that in a general way in the first uh, chapter and a half of the book. We're going to finish chapter 2 today from verses 11 to 25. Uh, but before we get there, before we get to, to the end of chapter 2, I want to share with you a little bit of a story. And uh, the story I want to share today uh, goes back to 1996, and it goes back to um, when uh, Kimberly and I got married my wife. We got married on a Saturday. The following Saturday, seven days later, we moved to Dallas. Because of all that goes into getting married and all that goes into moving, uh, our lives were pretty hectic. And in a day before the internet, we really didn't have a lot of time to connect with everything about our new life in Dallas yet and starting school. But all I had was a course catalog that told me that class started on a Wednesday. And so we go down there, and I thought, well, that's a little odd that it would start on a Wednesday, but I guess that's just the way that it is. But being the overachievers that we are, we thought, well, you know what, we'll go down there on a Tuesday. And we showed up at class on a Tuesday, and everybody was moving with this great sense of purpose. Everybody was dressed as if they were going to class. They had their notebooks. They were walking, and bells were ringing. And it hit me that maybe my course book was wrong. And as a matter of fact, it was. I had missed the first day of seminary. Now, there are a few days that you want to miss less than your first day of seminary, and, and, but I missed it. And I remember thinking at that time, I really wish there had been some kind of orientation to this new life. I wish there had been some kind of a class I could have gone to to learn what it meant to be a DTS seminary student. Instead, I just showed up and I was late and I was embarrassed. You know, thankfully, OU has, has gotten better at this. Uh, some of you may be aware that OU has this thing called Camp Crimson in the summer before you start school, and you can go and be a, a resident at Camp Crimson, and you can meet some people, so on your first day, you know people, and you can meet an upperclassman, so on your first day, you've got a mentor, and you can get a tour of campus so that you know where to go and when to go there, and you can even meet some campus ministries. I know uh, Chris, you and Lori were probably there this week, and our college life ministry was, was there this week, meeting and interacting with students on campus. Um, there was an orientation so that when people showed up, they wouldn't miss their first day. It's helpful to have one of those. Wildwood even has an orientation class. We would call it starting point. 
It's going to begin next Sunday. It meets down in room four at 9.30, and it helps provide an orientation to what, what is Wildwood all about and how do you connect and become a part of church life here. It's, a, it's an orientation class, and those can be helpful to keep us from missing our first day. But here's the thing. Have you ever wished that there was an orientation class for life in this society? ever wish that, that somehow we, we had some kind of a primer or a tool or a class that would organize things for us and, and let us know how to live in, in this secular society in which we live? You ever feel like you're just not quite with it, that you're not responding the right way to the things around you, that maybe you're missing the first day of what it means to be a Christian in America in 2015? You ever felt like that? I mean, if, you, if you're ever going to feel like that, now's the time, Right? The last couple of weeks have been filled with things that we feel the need to respond and to react to. Somebody walks into a church in Charleston, guns down people filled with, with hate and racism, and, and, and that's the kind of world in which we live. Gunmen, believing they're doing the will of God, walk onto a beach in Tunisia and gun down 30-plus people at a tourist resort this last week. That's the kind of world in which we live. Terrorist attacks. How do we respond? How do we live? Even in the last week, Supreme Court cases coming down the line, changing the reality, the way the law is enforced in, in our state and, and in other places. And, and uh, you might wonder, well, how do we respond? And we feel the need to respond, don't we? And yet we're not quite sure what to do. We're not quite sure what to say. We wish we had an orientation course. Are, are you with me? You wish we had some kind of primer and how are we to survive and live and thrive in this secular society, in this hostile environment, this hostile territory? Well, thankfully, I believe that God has given us just such a primer. I think that God has given us just such direction. And, and by the sovereignty of God, it is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. I didn't pick... 1 Peter chapter 2, because of the headlines of the newspaper this week, I picked it because long ago circled this date as this section of 1 Peter for us to be in. But folks, I believe God prepared this for us because He wanted us to have His perspective on our world. He wanted to give us some true grace. He wanted to orient us to life. And that, that's what we're going to see today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. So if you've got a Bible, open there. We're going to spend our time in those 14 verses. I'm going to read them through for us, and then we'll back up and, and unpack them a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, then this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, to the overseer of your souls. Now these 14 verses, I believe, are an orientation class to, to life in a secular society, to life in, in hostile territory. How are we as believers to respond? Uh, he outlines that for us here in, in really three parts that we're going to organize around these three words, out, under, and through, out, under, and through. Three things that we're going to see. The first thing we're going to see is this. How are we to live in this secular society? We are to stand out. We're to stand out. He says it very clearly in verse 11 and 12, we are to stand out. And everything within us many times wants to fit in. We want to blend in. We want our lives to look like everything around us. And yet Peter writes to encourage followers of Christ to say that you are to live a life that doesn't just fit in. You're to live a life that stands out. You're to live an exemplary life. You're to live a life that is marked not by your past, but by your future. Not by where you've been, but by where you're going. Peter writes and encourages them and writes to encourage us that we're to stand out. We see this in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He describes them as sojourners and exiles. This is the first time he's done so in this book. He's calling them an alien. He says you don't fit in. If you believe in Christ because your identity is tied to where you're headed, because your rights as a citizen are tied to where you're headed, not within the country in which you live, but within the context of the relationship with Christ that you will cultivate for eternity, because that is your orientation, you're going to feel out of place at times in this world. You're going to march to the beat of a different drum. You're going to stand out. You're not going to fit in. See, if, if our lives ever, ever fit in in the world around us, it's just because the world and God are agreeing on something. It's not because God has changed for the world. See, when we live our lives following Christ, there will be many things about us that stand out because we're going to live our lives based on our new identity in Christ, based on our new citizenship in heaven, not based on the world around us or the flesh around us that is tempting us to sin. Peter writes and describes it. He says that our flesh is is waging war. The passions of our flesh are waging war against our soul. See, Peter, throughout this letter, has been consistent with reminding followers of Christ that we've been born again. We have a new identity. We have the Spirit of God inside us. We have a new set of desires to follow God and to live a holy life. That's what happens to us as we come to faith in Christ, as our citizenship moves forward to heaven. 
But as we live out this new life, we live it out in an old address, not only in this world, but surrounded by a flesh that wants to tempt us to sin. And Peter writes to to let all of us know that the desires of our flesh and the direction of our world are really at war with what is best for us. They're at war with our soul. They're at war with who we are in Christ. We need to remember this because why do we sin? Why do we sin? We sin certainly because there is a part of us that, that, is, that, is, that has got this, this propensity to want to sin, but we're sin because sin looks attractive to us. It looks good, and so we want to dabble in it. Even if we, we know intellectually that sin is not good for us, we, we still dabble in it because our, our flesh is that strong. It's, it says it's what we want, it's what will make us happy. Why do we gossip? We gossip because we think participating in a conversation at that level will be satisfying. Why do we strike out in anger violently? We do so because we think that striking out in anger will, will scratch an itch. It'll, it'll satisfy some, some urge deep within us. Why do we give in to lustful thoughts, whether they be in the internet or through inappropriate relationships? We do so because at some level it's just attractive to us. We think it's what we want. And Peter writes to say that these things that we think we want are really waging war against our soul. Now, how do, we, how do we put some context around that to make sense? Let me tell you a story that maybe will help that a little bit. When I was in college, I went to Yosemite National Park with some friends. And while we were out there, we decided that we were going to hike up Half Dome Trail. Now, that's something that, that, that guys do when you're 20 and you're at Yosemite. What's the biggest, baddest trail? Let's go tackle it. And so we went there. We had all of the courage, and really we had the strength to get up that mountain, but what we didn't have was the brains to get up that mountain. And we started out on that hike several miles long without any water. Now, that was dumb, all right? Who does that? 20-year-old guys do that, all right? And I was one of them. And we, we head out on this hike up this trail. Well, we get uh, several uh, ways up there, and none of us wants to be the guy that slows the team down. Nobody wants to be the one who stops first. So we were just totally parched by the time we get to the top of one of the waterfalls, to the top of Nevada Falls. And we we get up there, and and I'm, I'm just so thirsty, and I look, and there's this beautiful pool of water. And I think, praise the Lord. Uh, and I go over to this beautiful pool of water, and I'm getting ready to drink Gideon style. You know, like down on your knees, just lapping it up like a dog. That's where I'm headed. And I get all the way over to the water, and I start to get down there. And my friend, who has more experience outdoors than I do, looks at me and says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I'm like, why? And he goes, because inside that water are tiny microscopic organisms that will make you very, very sick. You will become the home to a parasite for an amoeba or giardia. He said a lot of other words. He's he's smarter than I am. He goes through all this stuff. And and I I remember thinking at that moment, how could that possibly be? This looks like an Aquafina commercial, okay? I should be able to drink this water. Why is it that I can't drink it? It's because he knew something I didn't know. The water that looked good really wasn't good for me. But then I thought, okay, well, if I can't drink it, at least I will swim in it. And so I, I thought, you know, it's, I'm hot. I'm going to hop in this water and just kind of swim around. But before I get in the water, I look, and there's a sign. And on that sign, it says, if you slip and fall in this water, you will go over the falls, and you will die. And there's a picture of somebody on there going like, like that on the, on the sign. And, and I, I'm like, okay, I don't want to be the home to a parasite, and I don't want to die. Therefore, I'm just going to have to be hot and thirsty, all right? Um, but that is a picture for us of temptation, isn't it? 
Why do we sin? Because it looks good. Why does God say don't do it? Not because he's a killjoy, but because he knows there are microscopic things inside of that that will make you very sick. He knows that there are hazards in there that could cause you to die spiritually and relationally, etc., etc. You see, Peter writes and says we're to live our lives in light of our new identity. We're to say no to these passions that are waging war against our soul. We're to stand out in our life instead of blending in and fitting in with the world around us. What is it for you that you could apply that truth in? There's something in your life, and you're thinking, you know, hey, I'm the only one in here who's being tempted. Everybody in this room is being tempted with something. Your temptations may be X, Y, and Z. Theirs are just A, B, and C, but all of us deal with it. There are things that our flesh wants to tell us look good, will satisfy us. And And God says on the contrary to those things, that they will bring us great harm. Peter says, remember that and live a life that stands out. But why are we to live this life that stands out? He's, he's mentioned a number of reasons in this letter about why we should live a life uh, that, that stands out. Um, he, one, of, one of the reasons why he mentioned earlier about why we should live a life that stands out is, is for, uh, for him. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, Be holy because I'm holy. One of the reasons why we're to live this standout life is because of God. Second reason why we're supposed to live it, he mentions, is because of us. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, he, he gets into that. He says, you've been born again. You have a new identity. God's planted his seed within you that brings forth a love for others. We're to live this, this life because it's consistent with who we are. We're, we're to love others. One of the reasons why we live a standout life. But a third reason why we're to live a life that stands out is is, is because of them. And he introduces this idea in verse 12 of chapter 2. In that verse, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The idea there is live a life that is such a standout in following God that it gives no ammunition to the unbelieving world around you that wants to, to criticize you and tear you down. Live such a standout exemplary life that you don't give any fuel to the world to reject Christianity, to reject your God. Live a life as a standout so that the world around you might come to faith in Christ. Have you ever known someone that that's their testimony? They, they came into a relationship with Christ in part because of the faithful testimony of believers. I've got a number of friends in, in, around me that, that, that that's a part of their story, and it, it just resonates with 1 Peter 2.12. We're to live a standout life uh, for, for, for God, for us, but also for them. He, God wants to use you, that our, our lives and the way that we live would be like a, an amplification system on God's truth so that people could hear it and it would make sense. We're to live a life that, that stands out. Now, here's the deal. If Christians are living standout lives, if they're loving people like no one else, they're, they're caring for people like no one else, they're pursuing reconciliation like no one else. If Christians are living lives like that, why is it 
that people reject Christianity? And why is it that people persecute Christians? It just doesn't make sense. If, if, people, if Christians are living standout lives, why is it that they are rejected? Back in 1945, a Christian apologist by the name of Wilbur Smith said something that I think sheds a lot of light on this, this conversation. I'm going to apologize in advance. This is really long, and it's only three sentences. So it's a little hard to follow, but, but the truth of this is, is, is really important for us to hear today. Wilbur Smith wrote in 45, this is what he said. He said, at first one would think that a religion which exalts and seeks to follow the only perfect and righteous man who has ever lived on this earth, who never harmed anyone, whose words delivered from superstition and fear, whose works redeemed from pain and demons and death and hunger, whose life was a great shaft of light shot into the murky darkness of the Roman world, in that sensual and skeptic century, who died because he loved us, and who always sought to bring men into communion with God, to bestow upon them eternal life and a home in heaven, one would have thought that such a character in the religion which his life and work on earth established would have been welcomed with open arms the first moment it was announced, and would by its very message, the good works which flowed from it, and the hope which it established, never know opposition or attack or denunciation, except from the demons of hell and Satan, who was a liar and murderer from the beginning, period. But such has not been its history. In fact, the New Testament itself, from the records of the birth of our Lord down to the end of St. John's vision of the era of anarchy and persecution to come, testifies in the most startling way to the fact that Christ himself was most viciously and constantly attacked, and that his apostles suffered the same opposition, and that it was predicted by these very apostles that Christianity would continue so to suffer down to the end of this age. See, Wilbur Smith basically shares this point. We're to live an exemplary life so that people don't have reason to hate us. We're to live a standout life so that there is no obstacle about the way that we live that keeps people from the gospel, from the good news of Jesus Christ. But even when that happens, the world will still persecute and reject us, and it does so because of a supernatural reason. Satan himself has worked through history to darken the hearts of man so that they would reject Christ. They rejected him, they persecuted him, and they persecute the church as well. You know what? If we have lived a a measure of our lives where living a Christian didn't stand out that much, where our values weren't in that much of a contrast to the world around us, where we have not received persecution, folks, we are the minority, not the majority in history. And God was sovereign in charge and beautiful in the midst of that opposition. And as we gather here today trying to get a primer for understanding life, we're called to live a life that stands out, that doesn't fit in. And and as as our world around us has ebbed away at and, and certain values go away, our lives will stand out even more. And as they do, we should expect there to be some persecution as a result. The first thing we're to do is to stand out. But the second thing is this, not out but under. We are to submit under. We're to submit under. We see this in verses 13 through 20. And and in those verses, what happens is Peter begins to unpack what it means to live this standout life and and, in the nature of a couple of different contexts of relationships in this world. The first relationship he he talks about is the, the relationships of us to government, of Christians to government. 
In the second part, he's going to talk about the relationship of Christians to uh, their, their earthly masters. Many of these folks were slaves. For us, we might apply it in the realm of our work or of our employment. What does it look like for us to live a standout life in those venues? Peter writes and he, he tells them that what it looks like to live a, a Christian life in relation to government and, and work is that we are to be subject to every authority that God has placed. What it says. Verse 13. Be subject. Why? For the Lord's sake, not because these are great people necessarily, not because they're a part of our political party, not because we like them, not because they are more moral than us, but because they're an authority that God has placed in the world. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, who was the emperor when this letter was written? Who's he talking about? This wasn't an abstract thing. There was, there was a real guy. Who was it? Nero. Was Nero a good guy? No. Here's a little homework assignment. Go Google Nero, Wikipedia Nero this afternoon, and see just how awful a man he was. And yet, Peter writes to Christians living under Nero's rule, and he says that they are to, to honor him. And not only him, but the government that he sets up. And the reason for that is because God has allowed human government for a reason. He, he's, he's placed it in this world as part of his common grace. It says here in verse 14 that the government is, exists to, to punish evil and to praise good. The government provides for us many things in God's common grace. It provides us roads. It provides us water to drink. Those are, those are good things. The government praises good. There, there are awards that are given to recognize outstanding citizens or for soldiers who return from battle. They're, that's one of the purposes, the general common good of government. Also, the government punishes evil. And certainly we can think of exceptions to this, but in general, our government takes care of evildoers. They're we don't have to have vigilante justice when a crime is committed. And the reason why is because there are laws that govern our land. It's part of God's common grace that He has given. And even in a government that was led by Nero, God's people are called to submit. They're called to be subject to that government. They're called to honor the emperor. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, don't give the world around you a reason to disparage you because you're not obeying the law, because you're constantly deriding the government. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In other words, have a higher purpose in how you interact with government, not just to get all of your rights maximized, but so that Christ could be glorified. So that those around us might see our response and might follow Christ as a result. Verse 17, he summarizes this idea and he, he really gives it in, in four commands that are in two couplets. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Those four statements are in pairs with one of the words more intense than the other. 
He begins and he says, honor everyone, but love the brotherhood. The brotherhood there referring to believers in Jesus Christ. That we would have a a love for each other. How do we live within this society? We care for each other. We look out for each other. We provide for each other. We sacrifice for each other. We love each other. That's an intense command. But there's a a, a slightly lesser version, but but no less powerful when when he says, but honor everyone, regardless of their belief regardless of their morality, regardless of whether they they say something that you like or not. We are to honor those that we live around because they are created in the image of God and therefore inherently valuable. We're to honor them. Now, honor is different than respect. Respect, many times, is something that is earned. You might think of it in the sense of somebody who has an alcoholic father it was abusive. It's, it's hard for somebody in that world to respect them and the behavior, the decisions they made. Yet they're called to honor them still, to take them, them home when they find them out on the street, to not speak ill of them. Those are, those are things of honor. And as we live our lives as believers in Christ, we're to love each other, but we're also to honor those around us, even those very different from us. We're to speak of them with dignity. We're to do the same thing for our government leaders. We're to fear God. That's an intense thing. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We're even supposed to honor the emperor. If Peter could honor Nero, I think that we all fall something underneath that. Now, here's the thing. When, when When I say this and I talk about submitting under, there are questions that come to your mind as far as what does it look like for us to submit under Um as it relates to government. So just some FAQs to think about. First thing is, is why? Why would we submit under government? And the answer to that was right at the beginning of the passage. It's for the Lord's sake. We submit under our government not because they're so great, but because our God is so great. And he's asked us to submit to the authorities, lesser authorities on this earth. That's the why. What does it mean? Well, in other passages in, in the New Testament, we find that we're called to pray for our, our government leaders. We're called to obey the law uh, that, have, that has been given. And I th- certainly think that honor also means having a certain tone in the way that we talk, a certain tone in the way we talk about our government and about our government leaders. It's very important for us to think about that and be challenged by that. Now, what exactly does that mean? I'm not going to answer that for you. But you need to seek that out in obedience to the Spirit. You need to, 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 to pray before you hit post on Facebook or Twitter and say, am I honoring as I do this? Honoring doesn't mean that we can't disagree. What's the tone? As believers in Jesus Christ, we should live a life so that every government in the world would say, I want to have a country full of Christians. This is the way that they interact in this world. What does it not mean, though? What it doesn't mean is that, that we are to obey, that the government becomes our God, that we're to obey them even if it, they instruct us to do something contrary to God's Word. Peter himself in Acts chapter 4 disobeyed the direct command of, of earthly leaders when they said, don't preach the gospel. And Peter said, all due respect, but I'm going to keep preaching the gospel because I obey God rather than men. But here's the thing, there are not as many things as we think in our lives where the government 
is requiring us to disobey God. So what does it mean for us to submit to them? It means some things like this. But he goes on beyond submitting to government, being under them. He talks about this other institution and work, and we're going to cover this very quickly. But he talks about it in terms of servants. Now, the Roman world was a world that was made up of slaves. There were 40% of the Roman Empire, when Peter wrote this, were slaves. And and thankfully, the, the worldview of Christianity would end slavery one day. It would take longer in certain cultures than others, but it was this Christian understanding of dignity and value that would change it. But when Peter writes this letter, he writes to people who are living inside of a system that slavery was a part of. And as he writes to them, he tells slaves basically to be good slaves. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Again, the idea is that the the slave would not give their master a reason to hate Christianity. He became a Christian, and now he doesn't work hard anymore. By application, we could take this into our our world of employment, and we could, could think about what that means. If you are a Christian, every employer in the world should want to have Christians work for them. Why? Because Christians, out of are under, out of the, the foundation of our relationship with God, submit under our work authorities and do our best. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be good employees. We're, you know, we think of some of the FAQs in this category. We, we do it again for the Lord's sake, but, but it means that we don't steal from our bosses. Even if our boss is, is, is unjust, even if our boss is unchristian, we work hard while we're there. We don't slack off. We don't disparage him with our or her with our words as we live our lives. That's what it means to submit in those settings. What does it not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you have to stay at that job forever. They don't own you. You might think they do, but they don't. If you can't honor your employer, then go find a new employer. But while you are there, you are to support them. Again, just like with the government, that doesn't mean that your employer, if they ask you to do something unethical, that you should do it. Ultimately, our allegiance is to God. But Christians are people who not only stand out, but they stand out by submitting under. Third thing that we see in our primer for living life in this society is salvation through, out, under, and through. Stand out, submit under, salvation through. One of the things that that, that is so beautiful about the book of 1 Peter, it is gospel-obsessed. It is Jesus-focused. Have you noticed in every message that we've had, at some point he he, he starts a conversation and then he goes back to the gospel? He goes back to what Jesus has done? He points back to Christ and says, look, look there. That's, that's why we do what we do. That's, that's who we're following. It's all tied to Jesus. How do we live our lives in this society? It's by not getting distracted by all the decisions and all the stuff. Be, be good citizens. Be good employees. Stand out in your life, but be absolutely razor-sharp focused on the gospel. Because in the gospel, we, we, we see in Jesus both an example and we see our Savior. Look at what Peter says here, beginning in in, in verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is our example, and we need to remember that. Now, in what way is Jesus our example? Well, a couple of different ways I think we see that Jesus is our example. The first way that we see that Jesus is our example is that he is the example for us of this reality that we can be fully loved by God, we can be fully in his will, and yet still suffer and still receive persecution and still go through difficulty. We shouldn't ever doubt that Jesus was in the will of God. He came from the foundation of the world to die on the cross for our sins. We should never doubt that he was loved by God, My beloved son is how God described him. And yet Jesus experienced difficulty. He's our example in that we can trust that that, that God is still good even if we're going through hard times. But a second way in which we see that Jesus is our example is that Jesus did not fight back when he was under persecution. He did not demand his rights. He didn't come out swinging. Could Jesus have won an argument with Pilate? It's almost funny to think about. Of course he could have. Could Jesus have won an argument with the Jewish high priest? Absolutely. And yet he did not respond to their insult with insult. Why? He could have stopped the Romans from nailing him to the cross. He commanded the wind and the waves and they responded to him. And yet he didn't. Why? The reason why Jesus didn't respond in these ways, this verse tells us, because he knew that God had it. He didn't feel the need to win it on his own in that moment. He was just going to do the part that God had for him, to go to the cross and to die for our sins. And you know what? As as believers in Christ who live in a world today where there is difficulty around us, we need to remember that as well. Sometimes we feel like we have to win the fight with our next post, We have to win the fight with our next conversation over coffee. That we have to to somehow rally the troops in such a way to, to, to assert our own whatever. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be active, but here's what I'm saying. We need to remember that God's got it. Just as Jesus rested in the God who was able to make restitution in his time, so also we need to rest that God has this. He's seen worse, guys. Our culture is not the bottom. Roman civilization that this was written to was a mess. Peter says, we follow the example of Christ. He's got it. Second thing we see, though, is that he's more than just our example. He's our Savior. Warren Wiersbe said of this, he said, we're not saved by following Christ's example because each of us would stumble over 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin. Sinners need a Savior not an example. But after a person is saved, he'll want to follow closely upon God's steps and imitate the example of Christ. We need a Savior. Everyone in the United States needs a Savior. If you're here today, you need not just an example, but you need a Savior. You need a God who will offer you what you cannot achieve on your own. Verse 24, it says that, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. 
The hope that we have, the hope for our country is found in the death of Christ and the life that he offers as a result. We need to be gospel-focused. When we talk to people, the hope that we offer them is found not in Congress and not in the court. It's found in Christ. We have a hope for eternity because by his wounds, we've been healed. And then verse 25 ends with this beautiful description of Jesus. It says, For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Jesus is seen as someone who who watches our world. And here's the thing. This passage begins and ends with two groups of people who are watching our lives. The world and Jesus. One is to judge, the other is to shepherd and to save. But we get it mixed up who's who. See, many times we think that Jesus is out to judge us and the world is out to shepherd and to to give us some happiness, to save our lives in some way. And yet the picture that we see in, in the Scripture is so different than that. Jesus is offering to save us who would just but trust in Him. Would you stand with me? And I want to close our service today in prayer. And as I pray, I want to just encourage you, if, if, if you're here today and you are someone who has trusted in Christ at some point in your life, that today you would take comfort in the fact that there is a shepherd and an overseer of your soul, that he has it, and we can have confidence for our lives, not based on our circumstances today, but based on where we're headed. And we can express that thanks to him in prayer. But if you're here today and you have not ever trusted in Christ, maybe a friend invited you to come to church today, maybe uh, you've been here for a while, but you've never actually placed your faith and your trust in Christ, I would encourage you today that, that possibly God is using this event and this time and this season in your life to open your eyes to the fact that you need a, a better hope for tomorrow. And that better hope is found only in Christ, who by his wounds offers to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life. So we're going to pray. And as we pray, whether this is the first moment of your trusting in Christ or this is the thousandth time or the millionth time you've offered something up like this, let's join our hearts in prayer and thankfulness to our God who's got it. Father, we thank you today. We thank you for the life that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for the hope that you've given us for eternity. And we thank you that we can face life in in this society, in this this world, standing out, submitting under, but ultimately, Father, being saved through the work of Christ. Father, we uh, don't know exactly how to act, and we make a lot of mistakes, but I'm thankful that our salvation is not dependent upon our perfection. It's dependent upon the perfect life Christ already lived and the sacrifice He offers for us. Father, I pray for many who are here who have trusted in You that You would just encourage our faith today. And I pray for any who are here today who have never placed their faith and their trust in Christ, that right now in this moment, their hearts would be stirred and they would be embracing Jesus. And from this point on, they would live their lives not tied to their past, but tied to the future You've promised them, that the healing wounds of Christ would have opened a new door for a new day. 
And I pray that where they stand right now, their hearts would be embracing you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.